Isn't that great? I get to hear my wife say that every day. You get to hear it once a week, but today's going to be a great day. I'm telling you, she talks like that all the time. I'm not just putting that on. She's one of the most positive, uplifting people, and I, I think it's a great example for all of you. I mean, wouldn't that be what God would want for us to be speaking words of encouragement like that to everybody we know? And it's just great. I want to thank her for that. And uh, hey, thanks for turning the light on when I move. I just think that's kind of a cool effect. If I just walk, the lights come on. That's kind of neat. Everybody, this is Joel Lopez, and he's just an amazing man of God, and I'm thank you, thankful for you. Grab a Bible if you brought one. It's going to be a great morning, Malachi chapter 3. And uh, there's a book that I've read about four years ago. It's called The Blessed Life by Robert Morris. I just want to bring it to your attention once again. One of the most, uh, it, it, it's, it's old truth. It's, there's no new truth. Anytime somebody tells you, I've got something new, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are people that God brings along at certain times that have a way of making something old seem very, very simple and very easily, uh, easily accessible for someone like me anyway. So I would just recommend this book to you in the 40 Days of Faith if you'd like a book that would really challenge and help you to grow, which, by the way, is what the 40 Days of Faith is all about, right? It's for us to grow spiritually. This is not the 40 Days of Perfection. It's the 40 days of faith that we're in. This is the second week. And what that means is, is that we're going to be stretched. We're going to grow. Our thinking is supposed to be expanded. Anytime that happens, you're going to be taking risks. You're going to be experimenting. You're going to be trying on new ideas. And sometimes that will bring with it anxiety because we all want to grow. But let me say it another way. How many of you really love change? <laughs> Change is exciting and change is scary, and so with change comes some anxiety, and I've always found with anxiety, I have good days and I have bad days. There are some days where I'm at the top of my game and other days where I'm just not doing so well, and anxiety can pull us back into bad patterns. And so I expect that during the 40 days of faith, you're going to be challenged, and you're going to have days where you feel I'm growing spiritually, and other days you feel like, man, I, I'm not keeping my own standards, let alone God's. I want you to stick with it through the whole 40 days. Don't give up. Don't feel like you're failing. You know, you're growing. If you're failing a little bit, you're growing. It's not what happens in one day. It's what happens at the end of the 40 days. So I want to encourage you just to stay the course, read the scripture, get in a small group, think about the notes, and think about what you hear on Sundays. And, and make sure you spend time in prayer with God. I, I'm writing every single day on my blog a little help for you to help focus your thoughts. If you, if you haven't read the one from a couple days ago where I just talked about your moods. That's worth a whole week right there. Go, because oh, I'm not the only one that's moody. Come on. I'm going to make you talk to me today one way or the other. Yeah, okay, good. Me too. I, I, I ride the mood elevator, and I'm not always at the top, but I know some people who seem to just set up shop at the lower levels, and God doesn't want us there. So I want to give you some tools to help you grow. But uh, today, here we go, all right? Start off with the story. My grandmother is 98 years old. She lives in British Columbia, Canada. She's in perfect health. She, she and my, uh, my uh, grandfather were missionaries for 50 years. Incredible people of faith. Models to me, mentors to me. I've been taught so much about faith from them as they traveled overseas, taking a ship, dodging U-boats, you know, in the Atlantic. Great stories. My grandmother now, she's the only one that's left my grandfather's past, but I, got, I went up to see her at the beginning of the summer, and perfect health except for one thing that most of the time she can't remember who she is or where she is you know or uh or what's going on she's just kind of lost that ability but she's in perfect health 
I was so fortunate the first day I went to see her, she had one of those good days, and it was clear as a bell. She knew who I was. We remembered. We talked about Grandpa. We talked about our faith. It was just, it was more than I could have hoped for. If I talk about it too long, I'll get choked up. It was a, it was a great, great day. I went back the next day, and it was just normal. I mean, I don't think she knew who, who I was, couldn't remember, we couldn't share on any really meaningful level other than just to be with one another. I pulled out her Bible from the little notes from the, from the bedstand, and I started to read the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, one of her favorite books of the Bible. And the first chapter of Ephesians talks about the incredible love God has for us and how he, he provided his son so that we could be in a relationship with him. And it's an incredible chapter of hope in the Bible. I looked up after reading that chapter to see tears coming down her eyes, and I said, Grandma, do you understand what I'm reading? And she said, no, but it's wonderful, you know? And that, that was very profound, and I'll never forget that till the day that I die, because we were having a profound spiritual encounter together. She, we couldn't communicate at a cognitive level, but the Spirit of God was present, and she was responding to the presence of the Holy Spirit through the reading of His Word, and I sensed it too. You have two hemispheres of your brain. The left hemisphere, the cognitive, the rational, where analysis is done, where data is stored and retrieved, and, and, and most of us have been trained all of our lives, going to school, learning the skills, arithmetic, uh, writing, you know, reading, uh, science, physics, whatever we've learned, and there's so much pressure placed on us to become organized and to develop the left hemisphere of our brain. And yet the right hemisphere is the seat of emotion, and it's the seat of innovation, and the seat of, of relationship, and where love is, and where faith, where spirituality resides. And I would say, I would believe it's true for most of us, that most of us have a very underdeveloped right hemisphere. And yet it was through the right hemisphere that uh, my grandmother and I were having this profound spiritual experience together. Life is too complex, and the challenges in front of you, and especially those of you who are leaders, you understand that all leadership that needs to happen occurs through the through leading of people, through influence, and hope of the f- in the future depends upon innovation. All of this comes out of our right hemisphere, and we live in a world that's too complex to be thinking only with half a brain. And so if you're going to grow in your faith, if you want to become a man or a woman of God, you've got to be a fully orbed, a, a fully developed human. Jesus is our example, the most perfect human who ever lived, and he's our example that we should follow. We cannot follow him only through our left hemisphere, that this is a journey of faith. This is where you begin to expand. And at times when you don't understand and you can't process and it doesn't seem to make sense, you by faith begin to accept this is probably true because it's the word of God. And I'm going to begin to practice by faith and see the results in my life. It is in that you know, context and in the context that I've already built for you over these many weeks that faith is going to cause you to be stretched that you can choose blessing or you can choose comfort. You can choose uh, to be safe or you can choose to start stepping out in faith and beginning to take risks of faith. And that is going to be uncomfortable at times. And it's when uh, God is uncomfortable with us often that dislodges us and moves us forward. That's what the book of Malachi is all about. And every prophet in the Old Testament had that uh, special 
challenge from the Lord to dislodge people from the place where they were and to challenge them and to call them to the light and say, this is not right and this is what must be. The writer of the book of Malachi, this prophet, shares with the people of God something that is profoundly relevant to us today. And I begin in the sixth verse of the third chapter. He starts off by saying, I, the Lord, do not change. There's not a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. I'm the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, it's a good thing I'm a God of mercy and I don't change. Because if I treated you as your sins deserved, you would by now be consumed, blown off the face of the earth. But because I am a God of mercy and I don't change, you're still here. And this is why, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you've not kept them. What are statutes? Not statues. <laughs> statutes, ordinances. Uh, if you work in, in government at all, you know that the government has ordinances. Which, which, what is an ordinance? It's just normal behavior for normal people. <laughs> they make, uh, they make uh, guidelines. They make rules for normal people to follow so that there will be order. And God says, I've set up some things that are, should be ordinary, normal behavior for the people of God, and you have turned away from that. Because you've not kept those statutes, um, you've not kept them, I'm calling you, I'm saying, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You say, well, how shall we return? I mean, I didn't know that we were far. How do we return to you? And look at verse 8 now. Will a man rob God? And immediately the senses get jarred. What do you mean rob you? How do we rob God? What are you talking about, rob God? And God says, yet you're robbing me. And you say, well, how, how am I robbing God? In your tithes and your contributions. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're cursed with a curse. Not that I'm cursing you. You're living under the consequences of your behavior. You are living under the consequences of, of your behavior. You're cursed. You're living under this curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then in verse 10, he starts to bring the answer. So bring, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. We're going to talk today about the test. The most profound test that every believer has to face because it deals with your source. It deals with your security. It deals with your God. It deals with money. He says the test. I'll put, put, put me to the test, says the Lord of God, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you. In addition to blessing you, I'm going to stop. I'm going to to chastise your enemy that's seeking to rip out the bottom and destroy you so that you will not destroy the fruit, it will not destroy the fruits of your soil or your vine in the field uh, shall not bear, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I don't, I don't know of a more important message to bring. As we talk about faith and we start now to wade into the reality of where we live, God says, you're going to have to put me to the test someplace or another. And the place he chooses for that test comes to us every couple of weeks, every time you get paid. How many, how many of you get paid twice a month, like every, every other week, right? How many of you get paid every week? Okay, how many of you once a month you get paid? How many of you don't get paid, apparently? <laughs> I'm sorry for you. 
Every time you're paid, you're given the test. You're given the test, whom will you worship? Who is your God? Who will you thank for the income that you've received? Who receives the first fruit of the income that you received? For a lot of people, it's Visa receives the first fruit of what we received. Or MasterCard. Who do you honor for the income that you have received? This is the test. So just pause with me for just a minute because I want to get deep into your spirit today and kind of mess around a bit and really dislodge some stuff, all right? So get ready. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd really help us today. I want to be speaking as one who loves you and loves your people. And I pray, Lord, that your presence would be here. We would sense that. As we listen, there'd be that warmth that your Holy Spirit is doing his work in our life. And we welcome that today. And we ask you to change this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wish that the verses I read to you in Malachi, which is like about 15 verses from the New Testament, wouldn't it have been great if that was just like one page over on the other side in the New Testament? Because what I hear all the time is I can discount that passage in Malachi because it's in the Old Testament. Have you ever heard this? We don't need to talk about tithing because tithing is in the Old Testament and now I am in the New Testament. And for me, that's about 15 verses. And you would wonder, you might say for a pastor's sake, God, couldn't you have just put that like one page over? Wouldn't that have been easier? Then it would have been just settled, right? But God put this exactly where he wanted to put it because it's the test. It's a test of your heart. It's a test of whom you'll worship. Now, this whole book of Malachi is an incredible book because it talks about people who have been unfaithful to God and who have drifted. And the whole book is about returning to God. The first chapter is us returning to God. He's calling his people, come back to me. The second chapter, come back to your families. Return to your husband, return to your wife. I'm calling you to come back to your families. The third chapter is return to your finance, return to me in your finances. Return to me. In, in, in the way you handle money. And then in the last chapter, he says, now that you've returned to me, I will return to you. If there was not a book that was more about right now, I don't know what is. Because we're people who have so drifted from God and God's message to us today, and it's really the message of every Sunday, return to God in every area of your life. And so he gives us this test here, which is so interesting because it deals with our income. The first thing I want to talk about this morning is obvious, and you can write this into your notes. And by the way, this outline comes from Robert Morris, who has just taught me so much about this, and I want to give credit to that. But the first thing I want to give you this morning is tithing is a test. Tithing is a test. It's the test, actually. It's the test of your heart. More than anything else, God testing you in the area of your finances is the greatest test. And by the way, in the Old Testament, if you go through the Bible... The number 10 is also significant. Now, the word tithe just means tenth. It just means a tenth, 10%, one out of every 10. It's very fair. It doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. God's saying the first part of everything, the first tenth of everything belongs to me. But as you go through the Bible, you're realizing this number 10 is kind of significant to God because there's all of these tests in the Old Testament that relate to the number 10. So, for example, how many commandments were there? Let's start with an easy one. All right? How many plagues were given to, is, to Egypt? Uh, or basically another way, how many times did God test Pharaoh's heart 
with plagues in Egypt? How many? Ten. Ten. All right. Let me try a few harder. How many times did God test Israel in the wilderness? Now, that was a little more cautious, but there's a pattern developing here. Ten. That's right. How many times were Jacob's wages changed? All right. You're very good. That's four for four, everybody. Now, here, here's a hard one now. See if you can get this one. How many days was Daniel tested in the book of Daniel? How many days? Come on. Ten. That's right. How many virgins were tested in Matthew 25? How many uh, days of testing in Revelation 12? How many disciples were there? No, 12. I'm testing you. Come on now. Be quick. He's testing us. Why is God testing us? Why why does he care? Because God is testing your heart. The whole thing is about what kind of person are you? Can I trust you? Are you looking like me? Are you representing me? Are you acting like a child of God? It's, it's just test after test. God's going to do the same thing with you, but this is the test when it comes to our finances. For me, tithing is simple. It's just something you struggle with other things. I don't struggle with this one. You know, tithe to me, give me the first part, and you're blessed. Don't, and you're cursed. So for me, it's pretty simple. I just go, okay, I want to be blessed. But here's where this gets difficult. There is a lot of resistance to this whole idea about tithing, especially in the church. This should be as simple. I mean, try this out with one of your children, and they get this no problem. God gets me to keep all this, and only this is for God. Kids don't have a problem, but it's as we get older, it gets harder. And here's probably, you know, some of the, some of the resistance. You know, I'm, I'm not under a curse. Jesus bore the curse. So I'm not under the curse anymore. What are you talking about I'm cursed? Well, let me ask you a question. The Bible also says that Jesus bore our sin on the cross. But do you ever sin? No, I do. I sin. And you know what happens? Every time I sin, there's a consequence when I sin. I mean, God's forgiven me of everything. I know that. But when I sin, there's consequences to my sin. And I don't like those consequences. And that's what the word curse means. It just means that if you keep sinning, if you keep doing the wrong thing, there's going to continue to be consequences, even though Jesus himself bore the curse for the sin. So you don't have to carry that guilt around. The other one I really get, the big resistance is this. Well, listen, I live now under grace. I don't live under the law, so the law does not apply to me because I live now under grace. Would anybody be brave enough to say, I've heard that one before? Okay, thank you. (laughs) I've heard that one before. I don't have to do what the Old Testament says because I live under grace now, and I just would like to just push that logic to its fullest extent. That would mean that because it was right in the Old Testament, now that it's in the New Testament, it's no longer right. It's wrong. Let's see what what the Scripture might say about that if we were to push that out. Let's say I was to say, uh, John, you know, is my brother. Pastor, I love him, but I'm going to start telling you some lies about John. Now, if I were to do that, I would say, well, I'm under grace. God forgives me. I'm in freedom. I can do whatever I want. But there's going to be some consequences, right? It's going to affect our relationship. It's not true. There's going to be hurt. Anybody else who gets involved who hears that, there's going to be problems. So even though uh, the Bible says don't bear false witness, that's in the Old Testament. Does that mean I'm free to do that now? No. What about the part in the Bible where it says, thou shalt not steal? Does that mean I can, like, lift some money out of his wallet, too, while I'm at it? Well, I'm under grace. I mean, God's forgiven me. I can do whatever I want, right? No. You see, the Old Testament, where it was just all these great moral principles for us to live by. So the idea that somehow, now that we're in the New Testament, grace cancels out moral law, it's ridiculous. 
It's just crazy. I mean, I mean that would mean that I could now, uh, I somehow that grace requires that I would do less. But if I were to take this Bible and just take this passage in Malachi and go over into Matthew, about four pages into Matthew chapter 5, let me read this, read this to you. This is Jesus talking. Listen to what he said. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, which that's Malachi. Okay, he's one of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not even a dot off the top of an eye will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Lots of relaxing of commandments going on today, right? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus going, it's all about the heart. It's not just about keeping the law. You've got to have better heart motives. I'm looking at your motives, not just your actions. You're going to have to do better. So he goes on and says, you've heard it said that uh, in days of old or under the law that it was wrong to murder. Well, I'm telling you now, don't harbor murder in your heart. Don't harbor anger in your heart. You can't just hang on to that and think there's not a consequence. I'm looking at your heart. Grace demands more than what the law demanded. So he keeps going on. He says, I know you heard that adultery was the sin, but I'm telling you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart and you just keep harboring that, you're, that's, that's worse. You may not be doing the, the, the sin, but you've got the sin inside of you. And so he's saying that grace always demands more. So to this whole argument that somehow less is required of me now because I'm a person that lives under grace, it's just a fallacy of thinking. It doesn't hold up to, to mental scrutiny. What I've found and all the people that I admire and the people that I look up to and who taught me and what we now practice is that it's all about how much can we bless God with. That's the real question of real spiritual people. How, 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 much can I, how much can I devote to the kingdom of God, which is the point of the whole thing anyway? And so Marie and I, my mom and dad, everybody I know, my in-laws, the people who I hold up in high respect, uh, men and women of God, they have long left the tithe as any kind of a legalistic limiter. You see, we look at that as the guideline. We say, we're going way past that because the point of life is how can I be a conduit of blessing? And people who've discovered the blessed life know that the more I open up my life to bless others, the greater the blessing that God gives to me because he goes, I can trust that person. They don't think it's all for them. See, so God's demand is always more when it comes to grace. It's not about how much can I just keep for me and how much, no, the whole thing is God, it's all yours. What do you require of me, and how can I grow, and how can my faith grow? Now, the second piece I want to talk to you about this morning is not just the idea, but to show you how biblical this is. Because I think a lot of you think that this is just some man-made idea that somebody figured out a way to attach one or two scriptures to, but this is all the way through the scripture. Let's just start with the first book of the Bible in the first story of the first two people. God says, everything is for you, all of it. I've made this whole planet, it's yours, except this one thing, it belongs to me. The principle of tithing, 2,500 years even before there's a law. You see the sons of the first two people. Abel brings, uh, brings his tithe to the Lord and God blesses it. Cain refuses to bring the tithe, the first fruit, and God doesn't accept it, again, before the law. In uh, Genesis chapter uh, 
14. Let's pick that one. We'll start there. Genesis 14. This is under the heading that tithing is biblical. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine when Abraham came to his house. Okay? Bread and wine. So Melchizedek bringing out bread and wine, that's the first clue that this is a symbol of Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, it very well may be Christ because Christ showed up in the Old Testament many times before the manger in Bethlehem. And so this is one of those moments. What did Jesus give to his disciples at the Last Supper? Bread and wine. And so here's, here's Abraham recognizing that I've come into the presence of somebody very great. And look what he says. Um, he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered the enemies into your hand. And Abraham's response was that he gave him a tenth of everything that he had. So here is Abraham, our spiritual father, giving to tithing to Melchizedek, a symbolic representation of Christ in the Old Testament, 430 years before the law is given. Genesis chapter 28, Jacob speaking, okay? And this stone, which I've set up as a pillar or a monument, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Again, there's no law saying he should do this. Where does he get this from, that he should give a tenth to the Lord? Because this was the normal behavior of God's people. And it's always been that way. The normal behavior of God's people is this, that when God blesses you, you bring the first part back to him. And that's just been established in the root DNA of the followers of God ever since the beginning of time. It's the normal behavior, the normal pattern. It's ordinary. That's why God says through Malachi, hey, guys, you're robbing me because the tithe belongs to me. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. Look at this. Every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, it is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord's. In other words, you're to set it apart as different from all the rest of the stuff that you have. This part actually belongs to God, which is why Malachi doesn't say give the tithe. He says bring uh, the tithe, which belongs to God. Bring it to him. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1 and 2. This is to the people of Israel who are going into the promised land. God says, I'm about to give you this whole land. It's all yours. Crops you didn't plant. You're going to harvest stuff that you didn't sow. I'm about to give it all to you. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and you've taken possession of the land and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. Put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. That sounds like church. That's the house of God. Deuteronomy chapter 26 verse 13. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, listen to this, listen to this prayer. I have removed the sacred out of my house, and moreover, I've given it to the Levite, to the one in charge of God's house, to the foreigner, to the fatherless, to the widow, according to all that you've commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandment, nor have I forgotten them. I've not eaten of the tithe while I was in mourning. (laughs) What that means is I didn't eat the tithe when I was going through hard times, when it was difficult. I still gave to God what belonged to him. I didn't remove any of it while I was unclean. I offered it, I haven't offered it, you know, to the dead. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God, and I have done according to all that you've commanded me. So now he prays, look down from your holy habitation, O God, because I have done everything you've asked. Bless me indeed. Bless your people. 
That's the prayer of the person who's followed the command of the Lord. This is the ordinary principle of behavior for God's people. Lord, I've removed the holy tithe from my house, and I've brought it to your house, and I've placed it there because it belonged to you. It wasn't mine. And so, God, now I can expect you to bless me back. Now, if that wasn't enough, which should be, I wonder if I could ask you the question, if Jesus said you ought to tithe, would that be enough? I just have a sneaking suspicion it wouldn't be enough for some of you if Jesus actually himself said, you ought to do this. So let's look at what he said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. It's easy to remember that. Matthew 23, 23. And this is what Jesus said about tithing. He's, he's speaking now to religious people who gave tithes, who, who, were, who were tithers. But he called them hypocrites because of their heart. Look what he says. Woe to you, scribes, and woe to you, Pharisees, you religious leaders, you hypocrites, because I know you tithe. You tithe even the mint, the dill, the cumin, even the smallest spices in your cupboard, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. You know, uh, right there, he's saying you ought to have tithed. You ought to have done that. I'm not saying you shouldn't have. You ought to have tithed. But you're neglecting the weightier matters of of uh, justice and faithfulness and mercy. And some of you read that and say, well, that's not what he's saying. I know what he's saying. He's, he's saying that we, that we shouldn't neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. Okay, I don't think that the grammar supports your position, but if that's what you say, I'll give that to you. But let's just keep reading without neglecting the others. So I got you either way. Jesus is saying that don't neglect this stuff. This is important. Don't ne- as much as you wouldn't neglect justice and mercy, don't neglect this. This is important. So Jesus himself says this. That ought to be enough. And here's the thing. Going back to my original little story I told you, anybody with a soft heart towards God just understands this. This makes perfect sense. The only time it's a barrier is when your heart is closed. So the question is, will you open your heart to God and say, God, have your way with me any way that you want? Now, if that was the only verse in the Bible that said to tithe, I'm tithing just because of what he said. But I want to give you one more in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 7, where in the New Testament we have the writer of Hebrews talking to us about Abraham and Melchizedek again. And here's a great reason why we should tithe. Abraham gives a tithe of everything to Melchizedek. And again, Melchizedek, this, this, uh, this Christ figure, we don't really understand it, but apparently, I mean, this is like Jesus himself in the Old Testament because they said that his name was the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. And Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So people were calling this guy the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And then in verse 3 it says, He's without father or mother, without genealogy, having no beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God uh, who lives forever, you know, priest forever. I mean, they they said, we don't know where he comes from. We don't know if he's going to die. We don't know who his mom and dad is. He's just here and he's a great man of God. I mean, this is is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And so here's, here's Abraham recognizing that, bringing to him a tithe of everything that he owned. And then he goes on to say, now later on the law came and commanded you, Israelites, to give this uh, to the Levite from your brothers. The descendants of Levi who've received the priestly office, they have a commandment in the law to take the tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, 
And these are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, or this Christ, does not have his descent uh, from them. And he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him because of the promises. Again, 500 years before the law. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Verse 8, in the one case, the tithes are received by mortal men. So under the law, we're given tithes to men. You're given tithes to the local church. But by the one of whom it is testified, but in the other case, by the one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now you say, what does that mean? If you'll read that slowly and think about it, what this is saying is, I put my tithe in the offering, a mortal man may take it out, but I am giving to Jesus. Now that's a great motivation. When you you come down to the bottom line of it, the reason why you tithe is, I am bringing to God what is his. I'm bringing my tithe to the Lord. And once you get that, you realize the third point of this is that tithing is just a blessing. It's a way that, you know, God is blessed by my gift, I'm blessed because I've given, and everybody who is blessed by what I've given is blessed as well. See, tithing is a blessing, and it blesses everybody. There's no downside to tithing. There's zero downside to tithing because God says, I'm going to be blessed when you tithe. You're going to be blessed when you tithe, and everybody else is going to be blessed because you've given. It's an incredible, incredible blessing. And there was this king in the Old Testament who was a really good leader. And he loved his people. And he prayed for them often. And the nation of Israel had gone into a time of economic crisis. There was a recession. And so the good king turns to the word of God to see, is there anything that we've missed? What, have we, what are we not doing, God, so that we can come back under your hand of blessing? And in the study of God's word, he realizes what they have not been doing. So in Second Chronicles chapter... Um, Three, or 31, verse 4, he gets what, he, he has this realization, oh no, so he goes back to the people and says, he commands the people who live in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves fully to the law of the Lord. He recognized in reading, re- reading the scripture, this is something that has not been done. And so we've got to get back to making sure that the priests and the Levites can devote themselves fully to the word of the Lord because that's why we're under this curse. And so he puts out this commandment that everybody should obey. And so people begin to bring food and everything that they had, a tithe of everything, into the house of the Lord. So let me ask you a question to bring this to application. Are you being spiritually fed when you come to the house of God? Do you receive, let me say it more blamely, do you receive spiritual food when you come to Heartland Church every single week? Is God speaking to your soul? Do you grow when you hear the word of God? Okay. Well, the reason why that happens is, is because there are people who get this, who have said that we are going to give the first fruit of our income into the house of God. And because of that, the pastors, those who are, we we are able to give our lives to the study of God's word. So, and to equip the, 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 the body of Christ to equip men and women who are Christ followers to serve and to give and to respond so that the needs of the widow and the orphan and the homeless and the foreigner and those far from God can hear the message and so that the body of a Christ is equipped. That's the purpose of tithing, that the ministry can occur without hindrance. And so when you say, I am receiving spiritual food, that's the way it's supposed to work because there are people who say, I am supporting this. I'm making this, I'm giving it. They get it. But like Hezekiah, who spoke to his people and told them the truth, 
That's my responsibility to tell you. Because if there's some people who are doing that, there are some people who are not doing that. And the truth is, friends, you wouldn't dream of going into a restaurant here in this community, enjoying a great meal, and then just walking out real fast and getting into your car. <laughs> wouldn't do it. Okay, so, so hear me when I tell you this. I'm just trying to tell you the message and bring reality and maybe dislodge something that's holding you back. Why would you come to the house of God, enjoy this great spiritual food that you receive, and then skip out on the check? I don't mean that to cause disrespect to you. I'm just saying, if that's so, let the shoe fit where it fits because God wants to do something in your life. He wants to help you. He wants you to grow. And when Hezekiah cared enough about the people to say, look, I'm just telling you what's so, you know what the people did? They began to respond. They felt the prick of conviction. And they said, okay, we're going to do something about this. And they began to respond. And look at what happened. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits, the tithe of grain, of wine, of oil, and basically all the produce of the field. They brought it in abundantly, the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah, who lived in the cities of Judah, so it spread beyond just Jerusalem. And they brought the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God, and they laid them in heaps. In the third month, the heap started to pile up in the house of God. And by the seventh month, when the harvest was finished, there's just heaps in the house of God. There is overflowing abundance in the house of God. Hezekiah hears about this, takes his guys, and they go down to see what's going on in the house of God, that there is so much abundance. And like a good king, he's kind of worried about the people, and he's concerned about them. And he says to the people there, he says, okay, with so much here, what's going on with the people? I mean, do they have enough if they've given so much? And look at what is reported to him, Azariah, the chief priest, answered him. Since they've begun to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and have had enough and have had plenty left, for the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount that's left over. As soon as they started the tithe, God broke the economic recession. As soon as they began to be obedient, God blessed them with what? With heaps of blessing. And, and Azariah was basically saying, Hezekiah, this is just 10%. All of this is just a percentage, 1% or 10% or a tenth of all that they have in their homes. And God has blessed them abundantly. And so these are the two distinct testimonies that I hear from people as a pastor now for 20 years. From the people who tithe, Here's the testimony. I am so blessed. God has provided for me. God has met all of my needs. He's blessing my family. And there's an incredible sense of security. Unequivocally, every person, 100%, that's the testimony that I hear. From people who don't tithe, this is the, this is the complete, unequivocal, total 100% testimony. I can't afford to do it. I would, but I can't afford to do it. So here are the two testimonies side by side. I am blessed. I wouldn't change a thing. I've learned that God can be trusted. And over here, the other testimony, I can't afford to tithe. It does not take a rocket science to figure out what's going on. If you can't tithe, you simply, you know, you'll never afford to until you tithe because then you're, remo you're removed from the curse. You say, well, what do you mean a curse? From the consequences. 
If you don't bring God what is his, you will live under the consequence of never having enough. It's like there's a hole in the bottom. And you know what I'm talking about. You just start to get ahead and something happens. And the hole goes. And God's saying, if you want to be blessed, and if I can trust you to be a blessing to others, I will begin to pour it out towards you. That's the blessed life. And that's how it works. And so you have to ask yourself, what in the world is keeping me in the position of robbing God of what belongs to him? So I want to illustrate this for you. Some of you have seen this before, but in a way that you won't forget, hopefully. So I'd like uh, John and Adam, and let's see, who can I pick? How about Frank? How about you come on up here? Frank looks wise and distinguished. He looks like a good choice. Come on up. Give these guys a great hand. All right. Hi, Frank. All right, you stand right here, and Adam and John. All right, so here's the picture. I'm going to go on a trip. I'm going to be gone for a while, and while I'm gone, I'm going to entrust these men to take care of my wife, whom I love. And I'm going to give each one of you guys, I'm going to give each of you $10,000 a month, okay? I want you to get... (laughs) It's just an illustration, Adam. (laughs) Don't get too excited. I'm going to give you $10,000 a month, and I want you to give 1000 of it to my wife to take care of her. I'm going to give it to you, and each month I want to make sure that she gets $1,000 from each of you so that her needs can be met. Is that understood? Is that clear? All right. So I give them these instructions. I go on my trip, and I start to deposit money into their care. So about four months go by. I've been talking to Larie, and I decide to make sure and do a little audit of what's going on. I say, hey, Larie, how's the money coming in? How, how are things happening? What's going on? And she says, well, that Frank, let me tell you. Frank, the first day of the month, that check shows up. It is $1,000. It's like clockwork. He never misses. That's right. He is just on it. Frank is, a, Frank is doing it just like we said. I thought, all right, we can trust Frank. He says, how about Adam? What's Adam doing? Well, Adam, he's giving 2000 a month. What? Adam? Adam Johnson? Adam Johnson's given two, th- I mean, I only asked him for a thousand, but he's given, he goes, she goes, yeah, it's like, I mean, I didn't expect it, but she keeps giving me, he keeps sending more. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That makes me feel so good. It tells me about Adam's heart. Well, what about John? What's going on with John? And then Larissa says, well, we got to talk about John. <laughs> because the first month, John, Pastor John, only sent $700. What? Yeah, and you know what else? The second month, he only sent 400 And you know what else? This month, he didn't send anything at all. I'm still waiting. I haven't seen anything. Now, now when I receive that information, what is my response supposed to be? I'm going to have to cut John off. I'm not sending him any more money. No, John, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear the whole thing. Don't leave now. Because I've got to say, John is not doing what I asked him to do, so I can't send him any more. I want to send more money to Adam and to, and to Frank because those guys can be trusted. <laughs> now everybody knows Pastor John is a great sport here. Thank them all for being a great uh, part of my illustration. <laughs> John has had to endure that in three services now. You're such a good sport. Let me apply this illustration. Jesus said, I'm going away for a little while. Did he not? But I'm coming again. In the meantime, I want you to take care of my wife. Is the church the bride of Christ? Church is the bride of Christ. 
So, God, so, so I don't think we understand how personal this is for God. Every time you take that test, every two weeks, you have an opportunity to send a message to him. Who's your God? Who do you honor? Who do you thank for what's been put into your hands? And what will you do? What message are you sending to him about your love for him? About your love for his wife, his bride, the church? About your heart for the ministry of the church and the importance of God's kingdom. What are you saying to him? And you wonder why you've not experienced the blessing of God in your life that you hear people about. It's because God would say, well, if I can't trust you, how, why would I bless you? But to those who have developed the heart, because this, at the end of the day, is not about God needing anything from you. The money came from him to you. So he doesn't need it. And, and we don't need it. And, and it's been amazing how God has blessed Heartland Church over the 10 years since we've started. I mean, you have, you have no idea how God has blessed my wife and I and how he has blessed this church. I told you last week that for a 10-year-old church that has given away a million dollars to missions and to, poor, and to the poor and to, to Africa and to Haiti, I mean, it's just astounding what God has done. So it's not about God needing you, but he invites you to be changed and to be blessed and to escape the bondage to a God called money, which you serve, and to break free from that. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? I mean, what's he talking to you? What what is he saying to you personally about your trust in him, about your willingness to say, okay, God, I'm uncomfortable as all get out. Make him quit. That's good. That's good, that's good, that's okay. But God is dealing with you today and he's asking you to respond. And I hope this has been in a way that, that you will, you'll, you'll take that first step. In fact, here's the thing I know. I trust the blessing of God so much. He has been faithful to me all. I started tithing when I was 16 and I'm here to tell you that I have not missed tithing on a paycheck since I was 16 years old, ever, ever, ever. So I know, I know what I'm talking about. I know what it's like to be newly married and have no money and watch God provide. I know what it's like to move past the tithe and be well past 20% and still giving to God. Have a son in college and God's still blessing our life. Here's the thing I know. You try this and it doesn't work for you three or four months from now, you ask me for your money back. We'll give you your money back. It's God's guarantee that the one he can trust He'll bless. So I invite you to grow in your faith. Let's all pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak deeply to us and move us, dislodge us. I mean, make us grow. Bring the change. Bring radical change to our hearts. Set us free for the person who feels completely stuck in this area of your life and they feel they can't afford it. Give them the faith to test you, to put your word to the test and see if you won't pour out your blessing upon them. Lord, we don't have money problems. We have a spiritual problem. We have a a management problem. And I pray that you'd bring light to that and help us to grow. And may we be changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys today. I love you very much. Pastor John. Amen.